Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 15 in chapter 3 all the way down to chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, Galatians 3, 15 down through chapter 4 and verse 7. All right, let me throw a couple. Some of you may know these words, some of you may not, but I think it's important to think about. Often within Christian circles, we talk about worldviews. And, and what that means is, what, what is the um, underlying narrative that shapes how somebody thinks and how they believe and what they say and what they do? And so we'll talk about there's different kinds of worldviews. Another term that's sometimes used is a meta-narrative. It just means it's an overarching story which shapes your life. So, if you're an atheist, you have a meta-narrative, don't you? That, that meta-narrative, that story doesn't include anything about a god. Um, we're all just kind of results of evolution. And therefore, that will inevitably shape how you see people, how you value people, how you understand how we're supposed to live, and what happens after we die. Do you, you, you see what I'm saying? So, so we, we all have worldviews. We all have a meta-narrative that shapes us. It's, just, it's, it's part of life. You, you may not always know all the specifics of it, but you, you got that, that really shapes you. You say, well, I'm a religious person. Well, that's a good thing. But religious people have worldviews too. They have meta-narratives. You know, I, I've met some people, a lot of them, frankly, that are religious, deeply religious people, which, which, which is, at one level, you appreciate it because they tend to be nicer people. But their meta-narrative is this. If you're going to satisfy God and get a thumbs up from him, You've got to work hard all your life and hope you're good enough. That, that's true. I mean, no, it's not true. It's true that they believe that. And, and, and they're, they're good neighbors, to be honest with you, because they're really working hard to be good people. And so, like, as a neighbor, I really like that. But that meta-narrative shapes what they do and what they say. Does that make sense? That's not the meta-narrative from the Bible. And part of what Paul struggles with here in this passage is that the Galatians are hearing a different meta-narrative. They're hearing about the Bible, but it's all mixed up. It's all very confusing. And what's coming out is, hey, you know, you know what, you, what you need to do to go to heaven? Have a relationship with God? Yeah, Jesus is important, plus works. And Paul's saying, that's not the story of the Bible. You got this thing mixed up. So in Galatians 3, verses 15 and following, Paul is going to rehearse the Bible storyline, understood correctly. Because he knows if 
they understand the Bible storyline correctly, that will influence their worldview, their meta-narrative. So that that will then change what they hope in and where their peace lies and where their confidence lies and how they live their life. Everything is impacted by that. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay with me as we walk through that Bible storyline, which the Galatians really need to hear. But can I tell you something? Doug Finkbeiner needs to hear it too. No, I'm not thinking about going back to Judaism. Okay, 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 got it. But it's easy to add something to Jesus if we're not very careful. So let's walk through the Bible storyline, see what Paul says, and then I want to come back to us and ask how that, can, how sh- that should be affecting us. Th- does that make sense? To help you with this, I thought about this week, I'm going to have some PowerPoints that are ch- more charts. Now, maybe it'll help, maybe it won't, but this was at least my take on it. So you're going to see charts like this kind of running us through uh, the, the message, because I'm hoping... I'm hoping as I explain it, and you can see the charts up there, and we work through it, that the passage will make sense. Because I have to tell you, there are some, Pastor Tim and I were talking about this, but there are some passages in Scripture where when you read them, man, they just kind of flow right off the page. They're very practical. You're going like, I'm loving that. Husbands love your wives. It may may be very hard to live out, but but it's pretty easy to understand. You, You know what I'm saying? And then there's other passages in Scripture, when you read them, you're going like, man, that baby is dense. And you're just trying to figure, like, what's he saying there exactly? This is the second, not the first, okay? That's why I put the charts up, because I'm hoping the charts will help us kind of walk through it. But folks, folks, stay with me. Because the more we understand the Bible storyline, the more it will change our lives. Okay? All right, look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. Paul says, <coughs> Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So, What he's going to do is this. I I think if you were living in the first century and you were were what we call a Judaizer, somebody was trying to add, if you're going to be a Christian, it's got to be Jesus plus Judaism. Okay? Okay. So apparently you've got some um, Judaizers that are coming along and saying, hey, Jesus is good. Okay? We love Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. That's good. That's good. But what you've got to do with Jesus is... um, He is merely an add-on to the covenant that was given to Moses, what we often call the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus is an add-on to that. He's not the climax, the fulfillment. No, no, no. He's an add-on. So if you want Jesus, guess what else you need? Do you see what I got here? If you want Jesus, you got to have what he's connected to, and he's connected to the Mosaic Covenant. And so therefore, you got to come under the Mosaic Covenant, which means you got to become a Jew. Pork is out. Okay? Saturday worship is in. And a whole host of other things. Do, do you see? Because for them, it was this. 
And so you can't just say Jesus without that because they're connected. And Paul's saying, "Uh uh-uh. And Paul says, where I want you to start is this. You think about when a covenant, a promise is made. In other words, if I tell Pastor Tim, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm coming to your house for lunch today, and that's my covenant. You get my presence. It's a commitment, it's a promise I made to him. Now, other things kind of coming up, but if I'm a man of my word and my integrity, that's going to happen. And, and, and I'm not changing it. If Tim says something unkind to me, it doesn't matter. Tim, I'm coming for lunch today. I'm there. doesn't matter what you do. It is just a one-way promise, and that's going to happen. Do you see? Paul says that's how a human covenant works. Somebody makes a promise. It doesn't matter. It does, it's unconditional. It's happening, man. Promise to you. Paul says, when was that actually given in the Bible? Was that given under the Mosaic Law? Oh, no. The Mosaic Law covenant was not unconditional. It was conditional. The nation's going to enjoy these blessings. Matter of fact, if the nation does this, they'll be blessed. If they don't do this, they'll be cursed. What happened to the nation? It was cursed because it was a two-way street. This covenant is only good based on what you do. Got it? Whereas the first promise is saying, I'm doing it regardless. Do you see the difference? And Paul says, the problem with the Judaizers is they don't go back far enough. Because the promise does not come out of the Mosaic Covenant. It comes out of the promise that was given to Abraham himself. So look at what he says. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. See, how old is America? We're, we're what, 276, I don't know, 250 years, roughly. The promise was given almost the entire history of America twice ago, before the law came. Does that make sense? So a promise is given to Abraham. The whole experience, the whole American experience once, the whole American experience twice. Oh, now the law's given. Do you see what he's saying? The promise was given here. And what he said in the promise was, From you, Abraham, I will bless all nations. How well did Israel do with that one? Not so well. But God made a promise. And Abraham, I'm going to do this through your seed. Now, now, Paul, sometimes people read this and they say, well, you know, Paul, the word seed can be a collective singular, you know. You can use seed for a whole group of people. It's just a collective singular. I get that. Paul knows that. He's going to use it that way in verse 29. No problem. Paul is saying something much deeper. Paul is saying, yes, there was seed. There was Isaac. There was Jacob. Yes, seed, seed, seed. 
However, just like with the Davidic covenant, there was David's son and Solomon and other guys, but everybody failed. And so there has to be an ultimate son. And for the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled, there has to be an ultimate seed. Through whom? Really? Unconditionally? All people of faith can come into a relationship with God. Do you see? And so the Judaizers were doing this, and Paul was saying, do you know there's 430 years between the promise unconditional and the Mosaic covenant conditional? And God is a promise-keeping God. And so when he looks and says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it through your seed, How well does Isaac square up for that? Not so well. How does any of the seed of Abraham, Jewish speaking, do? There's only one seed. Matter of fact, do you remember back in Genesis chapter 3? I mean, the fruit hadn't even rotted yet, fallen on the ground. And you already have this promise from God where God says, you know what? There's going to be enmity between, talking to Satan, between (coughs) the woman's seed and your seed. And he says this, he, singular, shall crush your head and you shall crush his heel. He's already using seed language way back at the Genesis, not to talk about a whole collective, to talk about somebody in particular. Do you see? And so when you read this, Paul's saying, no one else cuts it, man. There has to be an ultimate seed, and that ultimate seed is Jesus Christ himself. So that's the chart there. God's covenant promised Abraham and his seed. And it's only fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. Now let me just, um, let me, I, I should read down through verse 18, sorry. Uh, I guess I read 17. Let me read it again. Here we go. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law covenant, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. You can't have an unconditional promise and a do this and you will live at the same time. You can't have them both. (laughs) It doesn't work. You've got to have one or the other. So he says, the inheritance cannot come this way. You know what makes me sad? When I read through the Gospels, you find devout religious people who just don't get that. So in Luke chapter 10, you've got a a devout lawyer coming to Jesus and saying, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Do you see how he's thinking? Is he thinking, unconditional promise through Abraham. You know what he's thinking? You know, how much do I have to do? Like that, 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 that. Do you see? Very deeply religious, but his worldview is wrong because he doesn't understand the Bible storyline. And Paul says, you've got to understand the Bible storyline. So he starts out by saying this. Um, In verses uh, 19 to 22, I've tried to add color, so you see how we get added to here, okay. Look at what happens here in verse 19. And it's a good question. Paul is a great teacher. 
And as he's speaking along, he's thinking, now someone's going to ask this question, so I'm going to ask the question before they get a chance to ask it. That's what he does. Why then was the law given at all? Okay, Paul, you said promise. Ultimately in Jesus Christ, who even needs this Mosaic law covenant then? Really? Paul says, not so fast, not so fast. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. (coughs) So he's going to answer two questions here. That's the first one. He's going to say, look... um, and he does throw something in that's kind of interesting. And, and, and I ask you, when, Abra, when Abraham received the promise from God, was it through an angel or was it directly from God? It was directly from God. And we know from other places in the New Testament and also from other Jewish tradition that when Moses received the law, it was through angels. And so... Part of what Paul's arguing is, look, 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 these are two separate covenants. And it's not like this one is bad, but God himself steps on the scene and says, I will do this. Here, he gives it through a mediator. Which one's more impressive to you? Do you see? Isn't it the direct one? And so why was this law given? Is it unimportant? No, it's important. It was given for one reason. Well, it was given for a host of reasons, but in this case, Paul emphasized it was given for this reason as we talk about salvation history. It was given for this reason. So that all people would clearly know that they're sinners. I I could say it like this. If you're driving down the road and there's no speed limit sign, you just, yeah, you know those roads. And I just kind of assume if there's no speed limit sign, it's 55, right? which is a really bad assumption, right? So a police officer pulls out, pulls me over, and he says, Mr. Finkbeiner, you were going 55 in a 35 mile an hour. I say, but nothing was posted, sir. I didn't see a thing. He says, sorry, pal, and he slaps me with a ticket. Now, it's wrong. I did something wrong. It's a little bit different, though, if I'm driving down the road and there's a sign that says 35 miles an hour, and I go through that at 55. We've all had these experiences. And the cop pulls me over. Now, hopefully not the second part, but, but the, the, the police officer, sorry, police officer pulls me over. And he says, Mr. Finkbeiner, do you know how fast you were going and what, what the speed limit was? And now if I'm honest, I could lie, just, but, but if I'm honest, I'd say, yeah, I clearly knew what I was doing. I was in a hurry. I didn't care what the sign said. I went. That's what the law does. Doesn't it? People kind of go along their merry way. They, they have a moral conscience. They have their own. So you know, they, they know they violate that too and so forth. All of a sudden, you've got these whole series of laws that says, look, here is a God who's going to bless or curse a nation based on actually what they do. And all of a sudden, you go like, I don't do so well with that one or that one or that one or that one or that one. But I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Do you see the difference? And so the law came so that people could not stand before God and say, I'm a pretty good guy. Oh, no, no, you're not. Not only don't you do it, you don't want to do it. 
and you stick your fist up and say, I'm going 55 and a 35. That's what we do. It's what we do. Do you see? So is the law bad? Oh, no. The law is holy. It's a reflection of who God is, and it does all kinds of things. It's not the only purpose of the law. But in salvation history, the purpose of the law is God's saying, I'm going to do something unconditionally with people. It can only happen through the ultimate pure seed, Jesus Christ. And in giving this, people are going to be crying out saying, I can't do this. I'm doing these sacrifices again and again and again. Somebody has to come and stop all this and change it. That's exactly right. New covenant. Do you see? So Paul says, no, this is good. As long as you understand it never, was never meant to be the end game or directly connected like this to Jesus. It was always part of an arrow going somewhere else. Look at what he goes on to say here in verses uh, 21 and 22. He asks another question. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could actually impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. In other words, if God could have just said, hey, okay, look, look, I'm going to give you this law. You guys do it, and then everything's good. Then that's what would have happened. But what happens when we try to do it? We don't. We can't. We fail. Do you see? It goes on to say this. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so by the time, in God's design, God says, I promise you can't. Jesus alone has and is. He's died for you. When you believe in him, now you're free. Do you see? So, promise given. This becomes a pointer to the fact that I can't. And this says, trust the one who has. That's, that's how it works. He goes on to say this, though. In verses 23 to 29, he, what, what he ends up doing is he, um, he's going to sweep through this time period twice. Because he, he recognizes people are going to say, okay, 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 Paul. I get the promise thing. I got it. I got it. I got the fact that the law is pointing us to Jesus. I think I kind of got that. But can you unpack the law Jesus thing in a little bit more detail? I'm still, I'm still kind of fuzzy on that one. Paul says, okay, I'm going to sweep through this twice. Verses 23 to 29 of chapter 3, I'm going to sweep through it. I know Paul didn't have any chapters when he wrote, but whatever. Um, so I'm going to sweep through it once. And then chapter 4, verse 7, I'm going to sweep through it again. Because when I get done... I want you to understand the relationship between the law and fulfillment in Christ. Does it make sense? So let's sweep. So now we're looking at the Mosaic law and God's ultimate covenant in Jesus Christ. So, and this, uh, some, well, let's read it. It's got some great verses in here. I love this. Okay, so listen to what he says. Verse 23. Before the coming of this faith. Now, th- does that mean in the Old Testament people didn't have faith? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What he means is this. Before the ultimate expression of faith, the object of faith, Jesus Christ, before he came, what was it like? 
as he goes back and looks. Even people under the law who were looking and waiting for what God was going to actually do, they were people of faith. But you didn't see the ultimate expression of that faith, the object of that faith, until Jesus actually came. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So, the law was our guardian until Christ came. That we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So he's going to talk about what it's like before the ultimate expression of faith in Jesus Christ. And when the faith object, Jesus Christ, actually comes. And he says, frankly... Living under the old Mosaic Covenant, <coughs> it was like living with a guardian. I never had a guardian. Um, I sometimes, like if my parents would go away, like you'd have a relative kind of come in and watch you for a little period of time. You know what that's like? And they're really strict. Um, or I suppose what's even worse, if one of your older siblings is in charge. When your parents leave, you know what that's like? You're like, oh, no, it's going to be her. My older sister's the worst, you know. And don't do that. We're going to eat at this time. You're going to bed at that time. No no TV TV for 29 minutes. That's it. Mom and dad put me in charge. I can do whatever I want, blah, 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 blah. Okay. I come from a big family, eight kids. I know what that's like. Okay. And I come down toward the lower level. So not a good thing. But you know what I'm saying? In the, in the ancient world, a guardian, you could have somebody, man, I mean, they, they were going to be royalty when it was all said and done, maybe. Nobility, at least. But man, when that person is five, six, seven years of age, there's this guardian with them all the time. No, can't do that. We're going to school. I don't want to go to school. I don't care if you don't want to go to school. You're going to school. Yeah, but well, I'm going to tell my parents, doesn't matter. They hired me. This is what I do. Tough. Right? I mean, it's just the way it works. And so this guardian, this kid, I mean, he, he could look at slaves going by and saying, I feel exactly like you. Because this guardian is with me all the time. Help. Right? And Paul said, that's what the law was like. You can't do that. You shouldn't be doing that. Stop doing that. Don't you love God? Why are you doing that? Try to do this. But you're in trouble now. All that stuff. Until... The guardian is gone. The son now enjoys all of the privileges of sonship in his relationship with the father. And, 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 and Paul says, you know, that example kind of helps me. Before faith, I'm under a guardian. When Jesus comes, I'm a full-fledged son and daughter of the king of kings. Do you see? Experiencing all the blessings that he wants from me. Look at his proof for this. I love this. Look at, look at if you would, oh, verse, um, ah, verse 26. For, I have the NIV translated, so I think it should be translated for, but anyway, whatever. So I'm just going to say for. For, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ... Has clothed yourself with Christ. We sang about that today in one of the songs. It's beautiful. Okay. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed 
and heirs according to the promise. Do you know, when Abraham said, all the nations will be blessed, when God said, Abraham, through you, yet there is something for the nation of Israel still in the future. I get that. I, I get that. There's other passages of Scripture that teach us that. However, the ultimate blessings of having a rich relationship with, Christ, with God can only come in your relationship with Jesus Christ alone. Do you see that? And so that's what he's saying. You guys are Abraham's seed. Not, not literally physically, but spiritually. Because the only because you're connected to who? The seed. Do you see? Because I'm connected to the seed, I'm part of the seed of Abraham. That's how it works. He says something else. The beauty, you come to Christ merely by faith. You bow your knee and you say, Lord, I want you, uh, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I can't do it. Take me and forgive me and change me. That's what you do. And in one moment he does that and he begins changing your life. And when that happens and you walk into this building. Now, I know from a worldly perspective, you may walk into this building and someone might say, oh, that guy is a blue-collar worker. Now, that gal over there, she's a white-collar worker. She's better than him. Isn't it easy for us to do that at the socioeconomic level? Paul says, not in the church. Because my identity is not bound up in my occupation. There is neither slave nor free. Paul will talk about this slave freedom thing, and he'll tell slaves to say, look, I don't care what people say you're a slave. You're free because you're in Christ. Do you see? And what he does is he changes at the depth of my soul. I am Christian before I'm anything. See, aren't you an American, Finkbeiner? Yeah, I'm an American, but not first and foremost. At my core, I am Christian. That means it's not about my socioeconomic status, slave or free. It's not about my ethnicity. There's neither Jew or Gentile. So if somebody comes into the church and you say, their skin color is different than mine. I'm better. You don't understand Christianity. It's not about skin color. It's about the fact that we are in Christ. And one day the beauty of the gospel and revelation is every tribe and nation, people will come from every tribe and nation and they'll sing glorious praise to God. Do you see? And so when someone walks in, I say, hey, that's a person's not the same color as me. Man, there's something wrong, folks. There is something wrong if we're thinking that way. Socioeconomic status, ethnicity, gender. Neither male and female. Now, <coughs> does that mean, and I know this is controversial, does that mean that in the church that men and women are given different roles, or in the home they're given different roles? And I would argue they're given different roles. My wife, my lovely wife Sherry is with us. We are, at the core, we are partners. We are companions. We are husband and wife. We're one. And most of what we do, we do as friends. However, when we got married, before God, I promised, as the scripture says, to be the leader of the home. Does that make Sherry a child? Nope. Does that make her less than me as a person? Nope. 
God doesn't look at our family and say, oh, Finkbeiner, yeah, Sherry, yeah. No, 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 no. I, we get, both of us get thumbs up. However, we're equal as persons, but we're given different roles within the home. And that's also true of leadership in the church. Okay, so, so and, and people say, well, Paul's just removing all that. Paul's not removing that. He talks about that stuff elsewhere. So th- that's not the point. But what it does mean is this. I should never look at a woman in a way that as a person, I say, eh, she's less than me. Matter of fact, do you know over in 1 Peter 3, if I don't honor my wife for the fact that she's taken a role of submission in the home, the text says, God's not going to answer your prayer, Finkbeiner. Because you are not valuing her faith act before God in this home. So, so don't act like you've got everything together with me when you treat her like that. Do you see? And this text is saying, in Christ, at our very core, what matters is that we know him. Just a short aside, I don't want to get off on this because it could lead me down a a path. It is one of my great concerns with some of the gender debates of our day. I have to tell you. Where people want to define themselves by who they say they are and what they want. So if I tell you, I'm an angry man, so therefore I can be hangry. Would you say that's okay? I hope you would say that's not okay. But what happens is we're living in a culture now of folks who don't know Christ and they're trying to find their identity in some desire they have within and what they don't realize in Christ, that's not where, at the death of my soul, that's not where I define myself. I must define myself here and people that struggle in these gender dysphoria areas, the best thing we can do for them as Christians is help them to find their identity first and foremost in Christ. That doesn't mean everything goes away. I understand the struggles. I get all that. But they're finding their identity in something they were never meant to find their identity in. And this passage frees everybody, folks. Doesn't matter what the shackles are. Doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, how you were born, what your parents were like. All that stuff deeply pains us and is a struggle. I get that. I, I'm not minimizing, please, I'm not minimizing that. But it's not who you are at the core. Do you see? This is a great text. Paul says, promise made. You can't be united to Christ by faith. And let him change everything. All of your relationships, everything. You are secure because you are a child of God in Christ. You see? Oh, it's, isn't it great stuff? Well, okay, one more sweep and then I'll, then, I'll, then I'll shut up. Okay. This is just really fun stuff, folks, I tell you. Anyway, you're probably not having near as much fun as I am, but that's okay. <coughs> that won't keep me from trying. All right. Four, one to seven. You can see in the yellow there, he's still looking at the law, Mosaic law, covenant, and fullness and, and, and the ultimate expression in Christ. But he's just, he, he's, what I love about Paul is it's like Paul's teaching along. He's saying like, man, I got I to gotta really overwhelm these people with as many illustrations as I can. 
So he does the 23 to 29 thing, and people go like, okay, I got it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Let's sweep through this baby one more time. And I'll just use some different illustrations. Okay, okay, go for it, Paul. That's what he does. It's really good stuff. Look at what he says here in chapter 4. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So what he does in verses 1 and 2, he's going to give us an analogy again. In verses 3 to 7, he's going to give us the ultimate reality of what we experience in Christ. In the analogy, he goes back to this whole thing of heirs. And, and there's, there's a whole bunch of debate on what terms refer to here. But here's the bottom line. Again. If my father was a senator in ancient Rome, until I am considered a full adult, sometimes there was things that happened when when a child was 18, sometimes when they were 25, etc., etc. But if I'm 10, I don't get any of the authority that my dad has. I don't get any of it. I I am under... These stewards and these people are saying, don't do that. Don't. No, you can't use your money that way because you technically don't have power over that money. So no, you can't do that. No, you can't. All that stuff is going on. So why he's a, while he's a minor, as you can see there, he's like a slave. And all he knows is guardians and stewards until the appointed time of adulthood. So Paul says, so let me talk about you again. So what he does in verse 3. Here's the reality. So also, okay, that's the application to us. When we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And again, uh, yeah, there's a variety of things in here that we could go off on for 10, 15 minutes, but we're not going to. I'll just give you a quick summary. But we, um, so... Here's what's really interesting. I'll, I'll just throw it at you. James is going to have to wrestle with this next week because he's doing next week's message. And it's going to talk about those elemental elements again. In some sense, he looks at the, the, the Mosaic law and he says, you're under, you're, you're still in, uh, this isn't a bit best analogy, but here I go. You're in elementary school at best. It's just elementary. It's not, if you're going to be an engineer one day, it's not going to do a whole lot preparing. I mean, you just, it's just, uh, now, is elementary school pretty important? Yeah, it's important to learn your math tables, learn how to read. That's not a bad thing, right? But I can't be a nuclear physicist that way. But it, it's a starting point. And Paul, Paul will talk about this starting point sometimes from the perspective of that's what Judaism was like. And in a couple verses later, he's going to talk about that's the way it was, what, what it was like for you when you were under pagan religions. He'll use the same term for both. Now, Judaism was the way God was going to accomplish his promises. However, in the age in which we live now, if you go back to that alone, it's not much different than just being under paganism because you're denying its fulfillment. Do you see? So he says... This was all preparatory in the law. So that when Christ came, everybody could say, finally. I I really need him. I'm so glad he's here. You see? It was all preparatory in that sense. All right, look what he goes on to say then. 
So also we, when we were underage, that had happened. Okay, look at verse 4. I love this. I love this. But when the set time had fully come, or like the King James says, but in the fullness of time. I love that. Okay? But when the set time had fully come, God does two things in this passage, folks. He sends his son, and he sends his spirit. First of all, look at what he says. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might all become part of the law. Is that what he says? No, Jesus, in, in fulfillment of all the promises to David and Abraham, he had to be Jewish. No problem with that. He did it to redeem those under the law. Jesus was never an attachment. You need Jesus and law. Jesus was fulfillment, and as fulfillment, he becomes everything we were supposed to be. He lives a perfect life. He dies the death I should have died. And now as the fulfillment, he reaches back to all the people who are still living under that system and says, let me redeem you. Let, let, me, let me buy you out of slavery so that you can become sons and daughters of the king. Okay? Isn't it? It's great stuff. It's great stuff. Um, so in the fullness of time, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, to redeem the, that we might receive the adoption to sonship. Again, it's all about becoming sons and daughters of Christ. Now, my translation says sonship, which I think is a really good translation. Some people say, well, what about women? Why does it say son? Why doesn't it say children? It's only because in his analogy, he's working off of the way the heir is given the estate, and that would typically go through the boy, okay? So the analogy is about sons, but if you're sitting here going like, yeah, but I'm a woman, it, you're in, okay? You're fine, all right? Okay, it's the analogy, okay? So, so you, can see, you can see sonship as being broader than that, in, in that sense, by way of application. So relax, you're, you're in good stead, okay? Um, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship, and... Because you are his sons, look what else God does. God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are a child, God has made you also an heir. Don't you love that? Look, I've told you this before. If God saved us and said, okay, you're my child now, whatever. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't like that, but at least I was in. But it's so much more than that, folks. Because the God who sent his son also sent his spirit. And when the spirit comes into my life, he so works in, in the very core of my soul and my desires that it draws me to God so that I say, Daddy, now, in, in a reverential, holy daddy. Okay? No, no, because God is never, God is always God. But it's only because I'm connected to Jesus that, I, that I'm drawn to this God who I could never satisfy by myself. Never. But because I know Jesus, it, the whole Trinity's here, folks. God sends his son. The son redeems me. I'm united to him. He gives me his spirit. And together, I'm drawn back to the Father. This is a Trinitarian experience through and through. And I come back into his presence. And, and so you know in your heart, you know times when you failed as a Christian, don't you? And you go, oh, God, 
God is not pleased by the way I'm living. And yet there's something in your heart that draws you back to this God, doesn't it? And you come back and you say, God, I did it again. Forgive me. I love you. Not the way as much as I should. And God embraces you and, and you just, you know you're accepted. He's daddy. He's the most... You crawl up into his arms when you're scared and you're nervous and you don't know what to do and your life's a wreck and he embraces you and you just say, you put your finger in your mouth, your thumb in your mouth, you suck on it, you lean back and you say, because ah. that's, what, that's, what, that's what we're supposed to do. Crawl up into his arms when we failed. Crawl up into his arms when we don't know. Crawl up into his arms when we're in pain and we're hurt. And we, and we say, Daddy. And he says, I'm here. Paul says, why would you want to go back to that? That was wonderful in its time only because it was pointing to him. Because if it was not pointing to him, it would do nothing but curse you. And Paul says, if you're experiencing this, which is not a tack on, it's separate. It's the fulfillment It's connected back to the promise. That makes all the difference in the world. So what can we say? I'll say this quickly because you've done well. This this stuff gets technical, but it's good stuff, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, you're like, "That's, that's really good stuff. I think it is. Here's the point. Since God's promises to Abraham and his seed are climactically fulfilled in the coming of Christ and not in the law covenant... All who believe in Christ become sons and heirs of the promise. You're in. (laughs) If you know Christ, you're in. You may still be living under either our law system or the system that you've designed. You're not in. And oh, all it does is shackle you. So three, three applications, and then honestly, I'll wrap it up. So how does... The Bible storyline, that Bible storyline, shape what we think, desire, and do. It impacts what we believe about salvation. I am, um, this is supposedly from John Bunyan. I'm not sure if it was for sure, but nonetheless, they're good words. Listen to this. He says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Do you see the difference, folks? The gospel is all about bringing, changing my position and transforming me from the inside out. For Christians, it should impact how we view ourselves. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Do not allow the world around you to define who you are. Don't. People define themselves by their beauty, by their weight, by their strength, by their job, by their all kinds of stuff. That's worldly. Now, they're blessings and enjoy them to the glory of God. See, you know, as a Christian, God's given me this to be a good steward of. Praise the Lord. Go for it. That's great. But at your core, you are in Christ. And I just pray that when we see one another in here, 
We don't evaluate one another by saying, you know, I don't look out and say, oh, there's, there's John out there. <sighs> I make a little bit more money than John. <sighs> huh. Hi, John. The problem is not with John. The problem is with me if I do something like that. Do you see that? He's my brother. We're both united to Jesus. We're on different journeys, different experiences in our lives, but we are together. We're one in Christ, and we're just, we Abba Father, we love him, and we're brothers. That's why the Bible uses brothers and sisters language for us, folks. So that, matter of fact, Jesus says, don't call anybody father. Please don't ever call, don't ever call Pastor Tim father. He will not like that. Don't call me father either, right? Because I'm not your father. Now, we're called to lead, but we're your brother in Christ. That's what we are because of who he is. Do you see? And lastly, it impacts how we view God and relate to him. It is so easy sometimes for us as Christians to think that God is against us. Now, that doesn't mean he's, he's pleased with everything I do. That's not the point. But, but, but sometimes as Christians, we almost kind of think like, I, I, I have to satisfy him. You can't satisfy him. It's impossible. Only the blood of his son can satisfy him. But once he's satisfied, you can come running into his arms at any time and say, I've sinned, forgive me. And he will never say, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Stew in it a little bit longer, think finer. Never. Never. He's my Abba Father. And so you run and you embrace and you love and you are embraced back. And the reason that's the case is the spirit inside you keeps saying, it's true, it's true, it's true. Do you see? So it should impact how we view God and how we relate to him. Well, I've gone long enough. But isn't God good? Folks, don't lose the storyline. Because if you lose the storyline, you'll lose your way. You either won't come to Christ or you will forget the beauty and wonder about being in Christ. So remember the Bible storyline and come back to him again and again and again with thankful hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, why you would love us so much is beyond all of us. But that you loved us so much is something we embrace and hold dear. Lord, for any dear friend that might be with us today, that has never bowed the knee to Christ, is trying to do it on their own, by the law, by their own, st- whatever, whatever, Lord. Lord, would you just, in your grace, open up their eyes so they'll stop doing and come to the one who has done and bow before him. And Father, for us as believers, may we bask in the glory of being in Christ being sons and daughters, heirs of the promise, brought into an intimate relationship with you forever. What a wonder. What a joy. 
In Christ's name I pray. Amen.